Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Keith Begg, you founded Media Watchdog Sweden and you've long been a critic of Sweden's COVID-19 mitigation strategy. Um, that came to light and uh, many Swedes became aware of it because of a report in Swedish media recently. You've now had to leave the country. Uh, what was it that made you leave your home in Sweden where you've been for the last seven or eight years? Well, it's actually quite interesting. I mean, I've been used to getting hate speech uh, throughout the whole year. Um, about my criticism of the pandemic. And of course, I got threats. In, uh, I got a threat in uh, my letterbox. But I think the main reason is the rhetoric that is developing uh, with the Swedish state, um, their agencies, and also um, experts aligned to uh, the policies of the government. So, I mean, over the last week or so, uh, I and was have been referred to as a threat to democracy by experts, even a terrorist group that were trying to destabilize the state. And I have worked for 10 years in human rights and environmental rights NGOs, and it's exactly the rhetoric that is used by authoritarian states. So I felt that it could develop further. And I was really, really worried about uh, my safety. And of course, the safety of uh, my husband and also my two cats. So I felt I physically needed to leave that address because I was worried of what the consequences might be as the state mechanisms build up more and more rhetoric, uh, which was quite false around the workings of me was and myself. Okay, so me was Media Watchdog Sweden was something that you set up uh, about a year ago when the pandemic started. Could you just take me back to when you started uh, me was and, and why you decided to do that? Okay, first I'd say me was as a group of two hundred scientists, medical experts, concerned parents, teachers, human rights activists, you name it, and our whole uh, mantra was to challenge news media outlets and the Swedish governance system for gaslighting and ethical research, unsubstantiated reporting of the disastrous handling of the pandemic in Sweden. So what happened was that in April we could see very clearly that uh, the Swedish Public Health Authority was using non-scientific approaches. Now, many of us were in groups and we were in the vast minority of criticizing the Swedish strategy. So we were constantly, uh, we constantly received uh, hate speech. Uh, I was doxxed where um, my personal details were put up in a group of uh, of thousands of members. So I felt we needed to create a safe space for people who could openly criticize the Swedish strategy without fear of retribution and um, hate speech. So that was the main modus operandi. Now we've been painted as this clandestine uh, group out to destabilize the state, but nothing could be further from the truth. The whole modus operandi was that we could focus on advocacy 
to uh, change the strategy. But when the strategy was not being changed, we focused on um, the misleading information. And there was so much of it that the Swedish state and the Swedish health authority were giving to the people of Sweden. And they were also feeding that information to international um, news outlets and media outlets, when in fact it was it was quite untrue and quite worrying. So you set up essentially what is a closed or a private Facebook group. Let's not say closed, but it's a private Facebook group. The idea being that you didn't want a whole lot of people just in there, you know, flinging their shit around like monkeys if we were to be crude about it yeah. every time you try to have a discussion with like-minded people, right? Um, it's this, you know, just to put it in perspective, are you a member of many of these kinds of groups? I'll tell you right now, we have a, clay, a closed group for the Stockholm Gales, which is involved in organising playing Gaelic football here. Mm. I'm in, involved in closed groups. I notice closed groups actually some of the people have criticized you i know they're in closed groups about environmental reporting and pretty much for the same reason because you can't really have an open discussion without some nutcase coming in there so is this something that you do regularly in your advocacy in, in work around human rights and the environment well, I'm, I'm in a private, I'm in several private groups. There's one group for the cost of uh, veterinarian care in Sweden, and I'm in so many groups, I can't even keep count of them. Mm-hmm. But I think what's very insidious about this is that many of our members, they're not necessarily aligned to what was is doing. They're in many, many groups. And I think one of the greatest concerns is about uh, the vilifying uh of us by uh, Sverio Radio is that they went out to two of the world's most meritorious media outlets such as Time Magazine and Science Mag and accused the writers who happened to be members of many groups, including me, was stating that there were there was falsehoods in the uh, the articles, and um, that is absolutely incredible. That is something you would see from authoritarian states such as China challenging the BBC because of the reporting um, about China. So it's actually quite incredible how we have been portrayed as this clandestine group when we are just ordinary citizens who advocate on our spare time. For instance, we have parents in the group who are facing daily fines uh, per child to send their children to school. They are forced to send their children to school and they also risk child protection services being called on them. Can you imagine uh, for many people that is just so unethical and people needed support. And also within me was we have support groups for parents, teachers, school workers. We have a separate uh, uh, subsection. We also offer, try and offer uh, services if people's mental health is is being affected. So I do not see us as being any way a threat. We are just an average private group and we have never been sanctioned for breaking Facebook uh, policies as far as I can remember. Um, what was the discussion like? If we say you said that uh, the, the group was set up there, you know, last year when you realised that you sort of couldn't discuss these things freely without people jumping in with, you know, opinions that weren't really going to help the discussion forward. What kind of things did you discuss before Sveriges Radio, which is the public service broadcaster here, did a report about you and was picked up by pretty much all media and this tiny group of 200 people was painted out as almost being some sort of, um, you know, international group of influencers, you know, but what were the discussions about, uh, Keith? Were, were they about the strategy itself? What kind of things did you talk about in there with the scientists and the teachers and the parents? 
Yeah, initially it was about the gaslighting uh, media in Sweden um, who have benefited from a government bailout of 700 million crones. So um, it was absolutely, they were just publishing, they were a mouthpiece for the government and the, the state authorities. So for instance, um, we, I, uh, with the help of some members, wrote letters to the uh, to. Uh, European members of parliament in relation to what we saw or what I saw as human rights violations under the uh, European Court of Human Rights or the European Convention on Human Rights. So, for instance, people being denied care, discriminated uh, from healthcare on the grounds of age or underlying conditions. And we also felt that you know, Sweden had one of the lowest testing rates in the OECD through spring and early summer. So countries like Ireland were deciding to open their borders to Sweden. And we've been made out that, oh, we wanted all Swedes uh, quarantined. That is absolutely ridiculous. What we wanted was for the gov like the Irish government, the Belgian government, to look at the various statistics and make up their own mind about whether they should open their borders. And many countries like Belgium, Ireland, Austria, you name it, they adopted the precautionary principle. They worked hard in lockdown to try and reduce the virus and give the health services a chance uh, to deal with those that really needed help. So writing a letter is the oldest form of activism or advocacy in the world. So it's absolutely ridiculous. And it goes straight back to the to what the Swedish government have always intended, and that is to protect the image of Sweden, the sferia build, as you say in Swedish, at all costs. It's an interesting one because obviously um, at the beginning of this pandemic, the first thing that everybody thought about was, okay, we closed down Wuhan, China, we closed down these places so the thing doesn't spread. And then once the genie is out of the bottle, you realize that this is something that you have to deal with, that it's going to get to every single place. But as you say, very soon afterwards, vested interests, by which I mean, you'll have businesses, you'll have governments, you'll have agencies, you'll have private citizens are all sort of vying for this kind of thing. Um, wh why... How can they, you know, what evidence do they present that 200 people in a private Facebook group have damaged the image of Sweden abroad? And I'm going to be honest with you, Keith, right? I've been covering this story for a year. I'd never heard of you. I'd never heard of this group. I'd heard of some of the people who were in it, but I didn't know who you guys were, right? So effectively, two or three weeks ago when they published this report, it's the first thing I've heard of an awful lot of, of these things, that, that not necessarily that you're telling me, but the fact that you exist at all. So have they kind of shot themselves in the foot by publishing this report and lifting your concerns, you know, to a vastly bigger audience. You know, it's absolutely incredible. We're now 140 people because some people feel they have to leave because of threats and because of retribution at work. It is absolutely startling. We're we're a tiny group. Some of us have written articles, but again, we're not necessarily aligned to uh, one group. So yeah, we've had a few uh, publications, but. They were not like on behalf of me was i've had a few opinions published in foreign policy and as founder of me was uh that's about it but our influence was little or nothing we had no idea we were just a small group we were banging our heads against a brick wall nobody would listen to us or not nobody but very few would listen to us because it came down to the whole 
um, image, I think, that media and influencers around the world had the uh, impression, oh, no, this cannot happen in Sweden. And you get that within Sweden as well for people who will not take the blinkers off and face the truth of what's happening. It's this cannot happen in Sweden. So we had very little influence. And I really feel that Sveria Radio has taken the lid off Pandora's box and given us a platform that we could never have dreamed about. And now, um, you know, I'm inundated and others are with requests from media from Brazil, Belgium, uh, Switzerland, all over the world. So I really feel they shot themselves in their in the foot. And they also have absolutely opened a box about the invasion or infiltration of a private Facebook group that that is tiny and non that was non-influential. And now they have blown us uh, up onto the world stage. So I really think that um, they, they have shot themselves in the foot because we're not going to stop now. Uh, we have bigger plans. I'm in Ireland. My energy is coming back. So I will continue with this uh, advocacy. So yes, I agree with that. Um, your husband is Swedish and obviously he will be following this, the, the Swedish media. He'd see what's happening here. One of the interesting things for me after being here for over 20 years is to watch um, how this is perceived in Sweden and how this is perceived elsewhere. Now, obviously, there's very little travel at the moment, but I'd consume an awful lot of British media, Irish media, American media, and I'd one trip to Abu Dhabi where things are different. People wear masks on the street. They wear masks indoors in hotels. Um, there's testing, testing, testing all over the place. Um, how do, does your husband see this when he compares, you know, I think he was born and reared here, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, he was. So, so how does he perceive this? Because on the one hand, he's looking at, you know, the newspapers and Sveriges Radio and media outlets that he's consumed all his life. And on the other hand, he has you and Miwas on the other side of the living room, so to speak. You know, what is this a sort of a dichotomy? Is this a hard thing for him to handle, do you think? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And it just reiterates the point is that there's a lot of absolutely decent Swedish people out there. I mean, of course, when it began, um, when we started, he was a little bit sceptical of my... Um, my opinions and allegations because he really, really felt that no way could they do this in Sweden. But around uh, the end of April, when Andres Tegnell announced that he was pausing all data around COVID-19, he became a little bit more suspicious. And both of us have been uh, socially distancing to the best that we can. So yeah, he's got almost long hair now because he hasn't been to a hairdresser in so long. But he has become, I would say, a little bit infuriated because every day he now sees it from himself. He sees the media. He's asking questions. How can a small group of um, of of people in a private Facebook group can be so vilified and can be so threat, uh, such a threat to uh, the Swedish state? Like he's asking, what are they trying to hide? Is the net uh, coming closer uh, around uh, the misleading information that they have been given? So he has been very, very disappointed and he also feels betrayed. So he has been a huge support to me. Behind the scenes, I would not be able to have done this or to have continued on without his support. So like many Swedes now, they are really seeing their state structures and institutions for what they are. And it's absolutely... um, 
it's baffling for many Swedes because they did have a huge trust in the state. But as, as you've seen recently, uh, support for uh, Stefan Levine, I think it's gone down to 26%. So people are voting or almost... Uh, yeah, they're, they're almost stating that we do not trust the government anymore. And my big fear is that at next year's election, people will use the ballot box to voice uh, their absolute um, distrust of the current uh, Swedish government. So, yeah, to answer, just to cut a long story short, he was sceptical in the beginning, but now he is really, I think he's in a PTSD almost of what he's seen unfolding in uh, pandemic Sweden. Stefan Levian, of course, is the Swedish Prime Minister. He leads a reasonably weak uh, social democratic coalition government here. And, you know, he's never really looked like sort of becoming Olaf Palme, one of these sort of, you know, great leaders. But we leave Stephen, or Stefan aside uh, for the time being. One of the things that has been sort of raised against you, Keith, right? And it's, you know, it's the, the language that people use on Facebook. People tend to be quite combative. They say things on social media that they wouldn't say in the same way outside of it. So within the group, um, people have talked about things like euthanasia. They talked about things like murder. They talked about uh, taking people to the European Court of Human Rights because of uh, the decisions that have been made by health services here. Right now, personally, I think that that rhetoric is very, very hard because murder sort of includes an intent to kill people. But do you think that that's what has upset Swedes? That they think that you know the rhetoric is extreme, therefore they can discount you much the way the same way as in an op-ed the the twenty two as they're known uh, these virologists and scientists who wrote an op-ed and they had one little sort of not a misinterpretation of the data, but they had a sort of you know a fairly catastrophic interpretation of data that just made everybody say, oh well, you know they're all mad just let them go. So do you think the rhetoric in the group is used against you, is used to delegitimize some of the points that you're trying to make? Absolutely. I mean, I would say 60 or 70 percent of our, our members come from different countries where we're not used to being tone policed. And many of us uh, would say uh, many expats and immigrants who are there when uh, we get together over a coffee or that, that it is almost uh, you have to be conscious the whole time of how you express yourself in Sweden because it can cause offence and the most worrying thing about it uh, it all is that calmness is seen as a complete virtue but it's also used as a stick to beat you with if you show any emotion if you show uh you're angry or frustrated about something and of course um words that we that we have used from time to time that also reflects we've been dealing with this for a whole year very little has changed we are hearing the lies the non-scientific evidence approaches to the handling the pandemic every single day and nothing is changing nothing um nothing nothing of any substance is really is really done uh, to resolve what is happening in Sweden. So they use this tone to beat the critics with. It is actually really insidious. And everybody is, you know, we never claim to be this professional organization. Um, we're a normal private Facebook group. And, you know, as I said, we have teachers in our group who are who mail me every other day and say, I have to go to, to school. I've been told to not wear a mask at school because it'll cause panic to children. People are so exhausted. And again, the, the tone 
the tone question in Sweden for me is a standard rhetoric that is often used in authoritarian states to de-arm people from expressing themselves, but also to deflect the feelings of the Swedish government and the health authority in their handling of the pandemic. It is simply a tool to deflect. And one thing I would say to you, yes, murder is a strong word, but I wonder, um, there has been letters uh, that were procured uh, from several regions in Sweden where where elderly people were given morphine if they had breathing difficulties and instead of being given oxygen because most of the care homes were devoid of oxygen supplies were given a shot of morphine there is so much testimony of people all over Sweden who said that they were never informed that this was the type of care their loved one would get um, the person who received or the patient who received morphine was never informed that this was the palliative uh, care that they would receive there is so much evidence out there and we have built up this evidence and of course the Swedish government and the state authorities are coming back with tone policing because because the truth is too hard for them to face but what I would say to you we have one or two members in our group who have had their uh their their parents their grandparents receive morphine without ever being told uh until after it has taken place so you know murder euthanasia end of life care call it what you want but it is an absolute disaster and it's an absolute I, I can't even think of the word right now, but, it, you know, to treat the most vulnerable and treasured in society like this, this is a crime. And I will stand by that. And I think it's one of the main issues going forward that I would like to see addressed by the European Court of Human Rights or some EU mechanism to get justice for those people. Hmm. Healthcare in this country is actually, uh, th there's a law uh, in place, I can't remember the exact translation of what it would be into English now, but basically it's it's steered by that, and you were talking there about the principle of informed consent, that people need to be told, or their relatives need to be told what care they're entitled to, what care they're getting and why, and that hasn't happened, and there is a commission of inquiry that is ongoing into these situations, so what I would say to you, Keith, is it's not like people don't know that this has ha that this has happened because it has been in the newspapers. The very newspapers that have been attacking yes. you and your group have reported on the same things. But it would seem to me, and you know, pardon me if I'm going in studs up, but they don't seem to care. You mentioned earlier on there that in the election in September 2022, which is coming up next year, you think that Levin and, and those guys would be punished, but none of the other political parties seem to have done much about it either. Do you think that a majority of Swedish people share your views? Do you think that they're just tired, worn out? Uh, do you think that they have been hoodwinked? Uh, how do you think? Because it seems to me, having been out yesterday in Stockholm, where virtually nobody's wearing masks in Ikea or in Bauhaus or in the local shopping centre near where I live, that they're actually quite content with the mitigation strategy such as it is? That's a very good question, but I also feel there is a fear in Sweden. Um, it's a very consensus society. So if you go outside the margins, either uh, with your opinion, etc., you can be deemed very quickly a troublemaker, insane or other uh, uh, expletives. To be fair, there was one politician, I, I think her name is Ebba Bush, who did come out and say that uh, there was discussions with Stefan Levin, the Prime Minister of Sweden, who had stated that letting, uh, who who had stated that 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 to let the uh, 
the virus spread in society was uh, acceptable, not in those exact words, etc. But to be fair, people, uh, and not all Swedes, are scared to, to stand out from the crowd. And, you know, it gets it gets down to tone policing as well, that people are, that people can be devalued and can to, can be devalued if they give an opinion against the authorities. And the other point I would also say is that experts in Sweden, they seem to be on a, a pedestal or in an ivory tower. You do not question experts. I mean, that is totally different to, to Ireland where I think people are generally down to earth, but it's almost like that we need to trust the experts. We must trust the experts because their word is almost gold. And that is the big thing, the big debate that you have experts allowed to almost hijack Swedish news media who are not uh, experts in the field of epidemiology. They're allowed to, um, to, to state over and over again, non-scientific uh, advice, uh, which doesn't uh, reflect the WHO or the ECDC. So people are almost boxed in saying, we cannot uh, challenge our experts. I don't know anything about epidemiology, but the thing is common sense. You're not allowed to have common sense. And when you go back to uh, Swedish people or, or when we or, or when we uh, write about the pandemic in Sweden, many of us come from other countries and we know what's going on in our countries. We know the solidarity, the unity uh, that people are showing uh, to try and suppress this virus. Pe you know, lockdowns are so difficult, but I'm just home for three days and everybody's wearing masks. There's a tracking app. Uh, you know, you can still buy coffees from you know, uh, from takeaways and that. So for me, I know I'm only home a few days. It doesn't feel as oppressive as it does in Sweden, where if you enter a cafe, nobody's wearing masks. Really, the rules are not whatever str stringent rules they would like to claim are there. I mean, I don't see them as being strictly enforced. And if I go in and get a coffee uh, in a cafe, I do risk uh, getting the virus. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a... It's a double-edged sword, I would say. One of the things that was said about um, Miwas and the things that you discussed in that Facebook group was that you kind of gave the impression that it was business as usual in Sweden. And they would say, no, no, there was social distancing and people working from home. Um, uh, the more I think about it, the more I think that, you know, it, wasn't, it may not have been business as usual, but it was pretty close to it. Because of, you know, if you can work from home, that's fine. You will experience things in one way. But an awful lot of my neighbours are taxi drivers and they're bus drivers and they work in elderly care and they still had to go out to work. So things have been sort of carrying on and they haven't been, uh, you know, uh, instructed to wear masks or that. How did you experience it here? Did you sort of see it? I know you were uh, socially distancing and self-isolating with your husband and your cats. But when you looked around society, when you went to do, you know, your weekly shop, what did you notice? Did you think that Sweden was carrying on as normal or did you see any difference in the way people behaved? Well, let me clarify for first. I feel that the strategy is an elitist strategy. I mean, people who can work from home are usually in the middle class. And um, for me, you know, it's it's almost uh, kind of funny how uh, the Swedish authorities are stating that we have claimed that business was as was was normal as usual. But if you looked at spring and summer, the headlines all over the world, without any interference from us, were showing nightclubs open. Okay, uh, universities and and uh, high school was closed uh, for uh, it was distance learning for a few months. But I mean, they had you fifty people could gather together at an event 
I did not see a huge difference. And um, many media outlets have also like published that. This is not just um, what I've seen. Um, I feel there has been very, very little done. And what I find quite astounding is that uh, the Swedish government were given special powers, 90 days to take actions uh, in the spring, and they did absolutely nothing with them. And a new pandemic law uh, was, was uh, recently passed. And, you know, it's a little bit different than it was in the spring and summer, but compared to just say Ireland and other countries, I mean, the basic principle of wearing a mask is totally, uh, it, it's totally unknown in Sweden that it's always seen that, I mean, you have experts saying that masks are, are dangerous. And I mean, it's so ridiculous. In what country would the FHM, uh, the Swedish Public Health Authority, they state that um, you can, uh, you must, I know it's a recommendation to wear masks uh, between rush hour uh, on public transport. I mean, it's so silly, it's beyond words because does the virus uh, follow Swedish transport um, timetables? It's absolutely ridiculous. It's a simple, simple and useful way uh, to control and stop the spread of the virus. So I don't think things have changed. I wouldn't say they're normal now, but in the spring and summer, I certainly didn't notice any difference uh, between uh, Sweden in pandemic times and pre-pandemic times. One of the interesting things, just before we spoke there, I saw a news flash from one of the news agencies here and in Yavlabori, which is just north, a county just north of uh, Stockholm, they've now said that people should wear masks indoors at all times and the same thing in public transport, that they should wear them at all times and keep their distance because this Brazilian strain is starting to make its way through society up there. So that sort of marks a point. That's the first time that I've seen these things being recommended in all situations. So no exceptions made, you know, like you were saying about the you know the virus, it do doesn't exactly keep the time of the day here in Sweden, people eat their lunch early, but I don't think the virus has its lunch at half past 11 in the morning. Keith, one of these things that we were mentioned there, we're sort of comparing it to the way other countries did things like that, but it seems to me to be that in any situation of crisis, right, whether it be 9-11, whether it be the, uh, the Asian tsunami back in the day, that people turn to the state and they say, okay, we want you to do certain things for us. Is some of the faith, some of it blind, is it down to that? Is it down to the instinct of the Swedish people to trust the state that the state will do the right thing, you know, I mean, I'm trying to be as generous as possible here because I don't think there's as much malevolence as what we might think in certain things. You know, is that part of it or is there a sort of a, you know, is there something more, something deeper to it? Well, I mean, of course, there was trust in the state and Sweden always comes out very high in the international st statistics when it comes to trust base. But when you have the head of the public health authority, Johan Carlson and Anders Tegnell, the Swedish state epidemiologist, recommending that people wear masks on rush hour, uh, uh, on public transport, and they themselves are caught on public transport during rush hour without wearing a mask, I think Swedes are beginning to question their authorities' decisions. So the trust is completely waning. And you can actually see that in their support for Anders Tegnell. I think last October he had 70-something percent, and now it's down to 52 percent. And it's the same with Stefan Lovin. He has plummeted uh, in the polls. So Swede, you know, I would say 
it's hard to say, but I would say Sweden is a peace damaged nation. Um, it hasn't had huge crises outside of maybe the sweet are they the forest fires or the uh, financial crisis. I think it was in the 1990s, and the state has generally provided well for the people. So I think when you're happy, content, you know the state's going to look after you. There isn't very much of an onus to actually criticise it, but it's when crises happen, then the true intentions of the state are exposed. So, I mean, Sweden has had a very, very uh, questionable record when it comes to crisis management. Uh, the Asian tsunami, for instance, the Estonia uh, ferry disaster, and also uh, the forest fires in 2018, where they needed help from countries like Poland and Germany. So I think the crises that have happened in the last 20, 30 years are really exposing a government and state that does not either have the resources or does not have uh, the expertise to deal with crisis in Sweden. So I think that is a really big concern. And Swedish people are starting to open up their eyes. I mean, I've got now bunches of flowers at my apartment, it's turning into interflora uh, from Swedish people that I, I don't know saying, please keep up the fight. Our democracy is in threat. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to use the word fight uh, to advocate. So this has blown, as I said before, the lid off the Pandora's box in relation to the role of the government and the state. And as I said, I think it's going to have dire consequences in the 2022 elections. The first time we spoke on the phone was about a week ago and you were extremely nervous and worried about your situation at your home there uh, with your husband and with your cats. And now you've been three days back in Ireland. How are you feeling now? You know, it's so funny. I think when my parents and my sister saw me, they were absolutely shocked. I really didn't recognise myself in the mirror. You know, I had bags under my eyes. My hair was dishevelled. Um, you know, I... I slept for quite a long time and I did a lot of reflection or whatever. And I just feel this is so wrong. You know, in Ireland, uh, we know we're not perfect. We know our imperfections. But the thing is, if the state does something, it's not long before they are called out by the people, the opposition party and the media. So, I mean, for instance, was it our Minister of Agriculture? I'm not sure whether I was correct. He was found. Uh, he was found. He had attended a golf dinner, and he was resigned because I felt, you know, the Irish people would demand accountability. But in Sweden, you have what I will say incompetent and negligent civil servants who are making life and death decisions around the people of Sweden. And instead of facing accountability and responsibility, they are recycled within the civil service uh, section. You know, it's just astounding. And also uh, they can retire on fat pension paychecks. So being back in Ireland has really given me perspective. And you know, I feel quite calm. I feel motivated. Of course, I'm still exhausted. But I feel what is happening in Sweden is so wrong. And I feel the democratic deficits are being so highlighted. And, um, you know, now that the, the Swedish authorities in the state are being put under the spotlight, they are using rhetoric that is actually quite scary to deflect and point the finger at small groups, individuals who are criticising and rightly criticising their, dis their disastrous decision-making and responses to COVID-19. Do you ever think you'll be back here? 
you know, I think, you know, you'll have some people who are saying, oh, yeah, you're a drama queen, you left and that. You know, I am a Swedish citizen. I've lived there. I speak fairly okay Swedish, not the best, not the worst. It was my home. I've worked there for uh, for many years. My husband is there. There's so many things I love about Sweden. I love the nature. I We have a little cottage up in Darlana. Uh, I've I, well, I've had many Swedish friends, but I think I've lost many of them because of my um, opinions. I want to go back, but, you know, I feel that Sweden is not a democracy and it's sliding down a scale, the, the democracy scale very, very quickly. So I really want to go back. I mean, I don't want to uh, have this horizon ahead of me where I don't know that I can return to my home of citizenship. So... Uh, but major changes have to be made because we cannot live under this situation where critical voices are smeared or vilified, where you have to watch every single word you say because it might cause offence. This is totally opposite to Ireland. I mean, you know the language and the lingo that we use here. And, you know, I think it's a country that if change is not enacted, it has a very bleak future. And I think that bleak future, if changes are not immediately made, will represent itself at the elections in 2022. Do you think anybody will ever be held to account for some of the decisions that have been made here? Or will this just be sort of brushed under the carpet? You know, I watched a video, I think it's by Henrik Jonsson. And there was a law, if I'm not mistaken, in 1975, it was uh, an Olaf Palma-inspired uh, law, and I, I'm not sure of the total ins and outs of it, but it seems to exempt uh, civil servants and politicians from accountability and responsibility. So I doubt it, and that is why um, I feel that we need to try and bring some of the architects of the disaster to uh, the European Court of Human Rights or if not the ICC, because I really feel that they will not face justice in um, Sweden. It's shameful uh, what we've witnessed. And I mean, Stephen, uh, Stefan Lovain and, and many, many of the ministers in the government gave out uh, pleas and uh, uh, speeches to the nation about please don't go to shopping malls please stay home if you can and you know a couple of days a couple of weeks after uh, stating those things Stefan Levine himself was found in a shopping mall another minister was found skiing uh, up in Sillian so this is not right the fact that people who express outrage but who also express express in a calm way are vilified. This is incredible. Can you imagine if this happened in Ireland? I don't think people would remain calm. Um, I think they would be very, very bothered by that. And the the person who, who committed things like that would be called out in the court of public opinion, in the media and by the opposition parties. And you know, that pressure would almost uh, force people to resign because it is a betrayal of the trust of, of the people of the nation. But this is happening all the time in Sweden. No accountability, no responsibility. And the people, many people feel fearful to, uh, to challenge what has been done in pandemic Sweden. Keith, thanks very much indeed for talking to me. Yeah.